Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generation's Thinker Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of new generation thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the new generation thinker scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Professor Catherine Fletcher, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hello. So you're going to be talking about your new book, The Beauty and the Terror, which is just a a fantastic title and such a rich, interesting period of history that I am fascinated by the Italian Renaissance. It shaped Western culture. But as you point out in your book, it was far darker and far more complicated than we actually realise. So you challenge the traditional orthodoxy of the renaissance is like this golden age of art that it was actually one of brutality and political backstabbing what was the political landscape of 15th 16th century italy and and who were the hostile forces well italy when you go back 500 years is a very different political shape from the italy that we know today so it isn't all one country and the peninsula was divided into multiple states so you have Five large states, which going from the top, you've got Milan, Venice, Florence, the Papal States, ruled by the Pope, who's also a sort of prince in charge of a large area of land, as well as the head of the church. And then to the south, you've got Naples. And interspersed between those, you've got lots of smaller states. So we've got this very competitive political environment, competitive cultural environment. And because this is one of the richest parts of Europe, um, very um, wealthy in terms of trade, in terms of agriculture, you've also got a lot of other European powers, particularly France, the largest power on the continent, with an interest in you know, having some influence over this particular part of the world. So we've got a lot of players with a lot of different interests. It gets quite complicated quite quickly. But you can see immediately why 
there's quite a lot of potential for warfare, there's quite a lot of potential for conflict, and there has to be some very delicate diplomacy to keep the balance of power between all these different princes and republics. And who are the leading figures at this point in the politics and the arts? I mean, you mentioned the Pope, and of course, he is the I suppose the presiding figure, but who else is who else is working at this time? Well, if we start in 1492, we get the election of Rodrigo Borgia as Pope. So we've got the start of the Borgia papacy. In that same year, we have the death of Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent, the great kind of patron of Renaissance arts and letters. His son Piero succeeds him as kind of de facto informal ruler of Florence. And then we've also, within this world, we have got people like Leonardo da Vinci, we have Michelangelo coming onto the scene, we have Machiavelli coming onto the scene, we have Isabella d'Este, the kind of first lady of the Renaissance world. So we have all these kind of very big celebrity names of the Renaissance very much in one place at one time. And looking internationally, of course, we also have that um, well-known Italian Christopher Columbus going off on his home imperial adventures. We have coming onto the scene people like the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who ends up kind of ruling half of Europe. And of course, this is also the same time as um, in England, we've got the Tudor dynasty. So you have people, you know, Henry VII and then Henry VIII kind of coexisting in this same world. And to just to add like further confusion, we then get the Reformation in 1517. So you have Martin Luther living in parallel to all these people in Italy and beyond. So it's a very, very kind of rich and complex period of European history. But it's really fascinating to see how it all links together. So you talk about the, the the darker side of this time, and I think a really good example of that is Florence and the the environment in which Michelangelo was working in. So if we look at the sculpture David and how that is such an icon of, of Florence, it's what, as you say, people people flock to. What is the backstory to that that is the lesser known aspect of this of of, of this story of this period? But in a sense, the, the idea of David as a representative of Florence is Florence as this sort of small state trying to preserve itself from being attacked by powers outside. And a particularly Republican Florence trying to preserve its liberty as against foreign powers that might want to perhaps not necessarily invade it, but take over and impose people who are going to be loyal to them. So Michelangelo um, personally, although he does work for the Medici, is very much on the side of Florentine politics that's sympathetic to the anti-Medici party, to the people who would like broader-based Republican form of government. So Florence is not a principality. It doesn't have a prince or a king or a duke at the head of government. It has an elected government, I mean, albeit elected among a fairly narrow franchise of elite men, um, but an elected government nonetheless. And the Medici managed to run Florence by virtue of, you know, alliances and some level of corruption in terms of how they run the public offices. But basically, they are um, somewhat elected and not solely until the 1530s hereditary rulers. Now, against them, you have a group of people who are very much opposed to the kind of increasing lordship of the Medici. And 
want to preserve this sort of Florence's independence. And that's where some of this kind of Republican imagery, the imagery of David against Goliath, but also the imagery of, say, Brutus as the assassin of Caesar um, comes in. Um, and they draw a lot on that kind of history of the Roman Republic as well as the history, as well as biblical history. So you mentioned that this was also around the time that Lorenzo de' Medici had just died. And he was called Lorenzo the Magnificent. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what, A, sort of what made him magnificent? And B, what was the effect of his of his death in Florence? I mean, how did that change the order of things? Well, when Lorenzo died in 1492, he, I mean, he was actually, he was still quite young. He had been a sort of very significant patron of arts, notably in the foundation of the library that's still there at the Basilica of San Lorenzo in Florence. He had been an early patron of quite a number of artists. He had also presided over some quite difficult politics in terms of maintaining the Medici in power in Florence when there was a conspiracy against them in 1478. So that's the Patsy conspiracy. And so he left... um, Florence with this kind of spectacular cultural world um, that his family had patronised and and developed over several generations. He also left it in the hands, indirectly, of his son Piero. Now, as I said, um, Florence is not a straightforward hereditary monarchy. He can't straightforwardly pass on power to Piero. And Piero doesn't really have his father's talents in government. He becomes known as Piero the Unfortunate because within a couple of years of becoming the head of the Medici family, he's actually forced into exile by political opponents in Florence who take advantage of the fact that the French have invaded Italy. And so they overthrow the Medici, kick them out and set up an alternative government instead. And wasn't this always so at a time where there was a movement against the arts in Florence? Am I right in thinking there was a religious movement that pushed back against arts and and the, the culture of thinking and thought? Well, what we get from 1494 to 1498 in Florence is the very powerful figure of Girolamo Savonarola, who was a um, who was a Dominican preacher who had really gained a very big following. I mean, including members of the Medici family, actually, for his very kind of fiery hellfire brand of preaching, which um, challenged kind of the worldliness of government, argued for church reform, and targeted a lot of what he perceived as immoral behaviour. So that could be um, anything from reading classical poetry to painting works of art. There's a kind of apocryphal story that Botticelli was um, one of the artists who kind of went and burned his work on the kind of bonfire of the vanities. I think that that's um, a bit of a, a myth and the people who are writing in the contemporary world sort of you know simply say he sort of stopped painting at least for a while but what we do get is this quite sort of austere mode of living becoming popular in Florence for a while kind of cracked out on what's perceived to be sort of sinful but the people in the city get bored with it after a while when you're asking everybody to sort of inform on their neighbours and going around kind of knocking on doors and saying you know your dress is a bit low cut or whatever it happens to be you're wearing too much makeup I've seen you playing cards you know people don't like quite that level of austerity in their individual lives and so eventually Savonarola's opponents start to gain ground in the city elections he in turn is challenged by the Pope because he's trying to present himself as a prophet that is somewhat heretical potentially. So there's an investigation into him from the church authorities as well. 
And eventually it all goes horribly wrong for Savonarola in 1498 and he ends up being burnt at the stake. Oh, right, okay. So it's a short-lived kind of rebellion against some of that, you know, what we might perceive as Renaissance culture and actually quite a popular rebellion for a while. But yeah, it quite quickly comes to an end. But it's interesting that alongside all that very kind of high art culture, you could also have coexisting, potentially quite popular support for, for this much more austere form of Christian morality. So Savonarola, how much do you think that he was a precursor to Martin Luther and the rise of Protestantism that was going to affect England and the Reformation and the Low Countries? So doctrinally, in terms of what he thinks about theology, not very much. But in the terms of this argument that the church needs reform, that the church is corrupt, that there are lots of problems with, um, for example, absentee clerics, clerics not leading very personally moral lives and so forth. I mean, yes, you can see that, that, that he's part of a long movement for Catholic reform, and for saying the church is in a state and it really needs sorting out, that goes back, uh, that really predates anything that Luther is going to say um, from 1517 onwards about how the church should change. And I think what you get, interestingly, through and even prior to the 16th century within the Catholic church, is a lot of people acknowledging that the church has got its problems, the church needs to change, but struggling to convince the vested interests who are doing very nicely out of there being a kind of large pool of civil service opportunities in Rome, a large pool of benefices from which to pick a kind of acceptance that, yes, of course, you can be vicar of such and such, but actually, you know, delegate that job to somebody else. Um, so there's a lot of acceptance that there does need to be reform, and Savonarola definitely fits within that line of people who are calling for change within the church. But equally, he's not the same in terms of the ideas about the relationship of the individual to God as somebody like Luther, who will come later. So in the 16th century, did England's break with Rome and the, and the rise of Protestantism affect arts and culture in Italy's main urban centres? I think what happens is there's a period really in the 1530s and 40s when everything is quite in flux in terms of what religious ideas are acceptable and not acceptable. So this is the point when obviously you've had a rise of what comes to be called Protestantism. You've had England's break with Rome, you had a number of German princes deciding that they are going to go with this new reformed religion. And as yet, the Catholic Church hasn't really worked out how to respond to that on a formal institutional level. So there are lots of ideas washing around, some of which are quite influenced by Protestantism. There's a group of people who are quite influential within the church called the spirituali, kind of spirituals, if you want to give it a kind of literal translation, that includes some cardinals. It includes people like Michelangelo, people like the poet Vittoria Colonna, who's a very influential writer in this period, very prominent woman in the literary world. These people are talking about how they might want to rethink religion and considering what of the Protestant ideas might be worth considering. And you do get quite a few Italians picking up some of the ideas that come from Protestantism, like the importance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So there's a, there's a very, very popular 
radical religious book that goes around called The Benefit of Christ Crucified. And there's an amazing painting by Bronzino, which is a very, very simple crucifixion that looks really, really unlike a lot of the kind of, you know, bright coloured sort of Renaissance crucifixions that you might be familiar with. It's just a very plain kind of grey background with Christ on the cross before it. And that's commissioned by some Florentines who actually get into trouble with the Inquisition as potential heretics for owning the wrong sorts of books. So there is this kind of period of flux. And then from from 1545 onwards, the Council of Trent begins to, to discuss a programme of reform for the Catholic Church. It takes 18 years before they actually get to a conclusion. But from that point onwards, you start to get a little bit more sort of firming up of what is and isn't acceptable within Italy. But certainly there's a very interesting period of discussion and debate and response when nobody's quite sure what the official line is going to be. In the narrative of your book, you use some of the most famous artworks, for example, the Mona Lisa, to talk about the social history of of Italy and the the social history of, of the Renaissance. And can you explain what the backstory is to the Mona Lisa and, and, and who, in fact, she was she was married to? I mean, Mona Lisa, is she's known in Italian as La Gioconda, and she's the wife of Florentine merchant Francesca del Giacondo. And one of the really fascinating pieces of research about Renaissance art that's come out in the past few years is a book by Martin Kemp and Giuseppe Palanti called Mona Lisa, the People and the Painting. And one of the findings they turned up concerning... Francesco del Giacondo's business interests shows just how closely he was linked in to the growing Spanish and Portuguese empires. So he had interests in business in the Canary Islands, which had been newly um, colonised by Spain, and in Madeira, um, which had been taken over by Portugal. And he was involved, so far as we can tell, in also in slave trading. He brought a number of in enslaved people to Florence for baptism. You can actually see the names of some of them in the registers of the Florentine baptistry. So if you go to Florence, I mean, the baptistry is one of the kind of like major tourist attractions. And one of the kind of really eye-opening things, I think, about that new research is the way that it perhaps shifts the perspective on that famous painting. And we're now looking at somebody who is you know, the portrait, the commissioned portrait of the wife of somebody who is very much tied into this new Atlantic economy. I mean, you know, not, not exclusively so, but it's quite something to think that this is a household where we are potentially seeing enslaved African people. We know that at least three of the enslaved people who, who come are described as Moors. And, you know, that, that's a very different perspective on the Mona Lisa than I think yeah. the, um, the, 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 the simple, wow, this is a beautiful icon of Renaissance art. And so I think it's important to consider how we see these connections between the different stories, the diff- different histories that are, that are happening at this time. Yeah, I mean, without which to paraphrase, it's almost well, Leonardo da Vinci was, in, in, a, in a sense, funded by wealth accrued from slavery. Yes, I mean, perhaps we don't we don't have the you know the precise details of all the times and all the contracts and so forth. But I think that you know that that is certainly an element of where Francesco del Giacondo is getting his money from, and that puts, as I say, a very different perspective on how we might perceive that painting. Mm. Da Vinci, as well, was very involved in the construction of arms, and I suppose the very intricate detail that is 
involved in creating a weapon to go to go about it a very roundabout way um <laughs> that's something that you're looking into at the moment isn't it his his work on that Yes, what's really interesting about Leonardo is that the way that we get from, he obviously he's famous these days for the art, but when you look at the way he pitched himself to the Duke of Milan when he was trying to get patronage from Milan, he wrote this 10-point letter and nine of the points are about how useful he can be as a military advisor and a military designer and architect and so forth. And the 10th is, by the way, I can do, also do art and sculpture. And so we can see in his notebooks the design of a wheel lock firearm so this is a type of gun that you can carry concealed underneath your cloak whether he's personally responsible for inventing that there's a little bit of a debate about it we first we see more examples first in Germany so whether he has copied down the mechanism that he's seen um, in a German example and tried to develop it, it, you know, is an open question. But he's involved in military technology in that way. He's involved in military mapping for Cesare Borgia. So he goes off to work for um, the son of Pope Alexander VI, um, the fairly infamous Cesare. People might have seen the um, rather <laughs> over-dramatised version of, of bad Cesare um, <laughs> in the TV show. But, you know, Leonardo works for the real Cesare, who is indeed um, sometimes quite an unpleasant character and draws city maps for him so that for, for military planning purposes so this again is a kind of use of these high level renaissance skills in the service of trying to build oneself a personal state normally being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And... It's, again, one of those examples where we see the different strands of the history of the 16th century coming together. Yes, we've got this absolutely glorious art history with these beautiful works. And on the other hand, we have it in the service of war, just as we have people like Francesca del Giacondo involved in the early European colonialism. Yeah, it's fascinating to think you have someone like da Vinci and you have, you know, creating the Vitruvian Man and understanding human anatomy and what it is to be human, and then also investing himself in weapons to allow the destruction of 
humanity as well. If, if it's it's an interesting paradox. So another another aspect of society is the is the is the female experience in Renaissance Italy. So you talk about the Venetian model for Titian's Venus of Urbino. So that's the 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 Venus where she's reclining nude with a little dog at the end of the bed rather than Botticelli's Venus. How is the female form represented in light of the darker story behind this particular painting and her experience? Well, the whole... I mean, the, the, one of the fascinating things about Venice in this period is the courtesan culture. And there's an association of this painting. Um, and for people, people who want the um, kind of finer details of all the arguments around it, I recommend Jill Burke's book on the Renaissance nude. But there is an association of this painting with a possible model who's the courtesan Angela Zafetta. And there's a poem about Angela Zafetta, which is particularly horrendous. <laughs> and I hope we're going to sort of give people a warning that this next bit is not particularly pleasant. And this poem describes a ritual punishment giving out given out to Venetian courtesans who are perceived to have transgressed the rules, and that's a gang rape. So the, the ritual punishment is meant to be a gang rape by 31 men, which sounds horrific enough. And in this particular poem, it goes up to something like 90-odd. So it really is quite awful. And so you have this fabulous painting connected by this tradition about the possible model through to this horrific misogynist act and poem, whether it describes something that's real or whether it describes just a you know, really nasty, nasty fantasy. And I don't think we know, but you know, this again is, is one of those things where you've got these kind of two sides of glamour and beauty on the one hand, and then you scrape away and underneath it, you get some really, really difficult material coming out about the lives of women who can be quite horrendously exploited. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, a brilliant example of, of your title, Beauty and the Terror, as an oxymoron itself. It's, I mean, that's terrible. And that's something that you believe was a common, was a common practice? Or was this, do you think that something that was just more elaborated rather than the norm? Well, I mean, one of the things that unfortunately we do see quite extensively in this period of Italian history, because we've got wars going on, on and off on the peninsula from 1494 through until 1559, is the use of rape as a weapon of war. So it's actually quite common in when a city is seized for the city to be sacked and for there to be sexual violence against I mean, women in particular, not not exclusively women, men sometimes as well, and children. There are lots and lots of individual cases that um, one can cite of quite prominent individuals and commanders in the Italian wars who are associated with specific acts of sexual violence and things like um, what we'd now call honour killing. There is a fairly misogynistic climate around, and I think it's important to say that that exists on the other hand, there are some, you know, women who do remarkable things for themselves as well. So I think I wouldn't want to go away from this with the image of women as solely sort of victims of these wars. There are some quite fascinating achievements by women of the period, including women from that courtesan culture. So you have examples of women who write 
on their experience as courtesans. So you have Tulia Daragona, for example, who's that relatively high-ranking, I, mean, high I suppose, courtesan is probably an illegitimate daughter of somebody at the papal court who writes the dialogue on the infinity of love. Um, you have a number of women, in fact, who combine these careers as courtesan and writer. There are interesting cases of people who use those roles as platforms to perhaps work more independently than they would be able to do if they were wives. But of course, it's a very, very risky um, lifestyle in other ways, not just because of the threat of violence, but also financially, it's a, it's a quite a precarious position to be in. So yes, it's, it, it, it's a very tough world. Do you think that there was a, the, the courtesan culture sort of went hand in hand with, with the arts? And so there was, I guess, maybe some opportunity for creative expression or do you think that the arts were more revered as a political entity? Well I think one one of the things that happens for women who begin as writers and then are married is that in all but a few cases during their marriage they're actually sort of discouraged from writing. You would have quite a number of examples of women who you know have flourishing literary careers and then those I think what one historian has called them thwarted ambitions. Those just get cut off once they become wives and mothers. Now, again, the wartime climate, to some extent, perhaps shifts that a little bit because you have women who write during their widowhood after husbands are killed at war. You have women who write perhaps in the absence of their husbands who are away at war. And the courtesan culture is obviously a place where it's possible for women to do slightly different things because they're not being told what to do by a husband. <laughs> so so they, sli- they slightly escape that, but, but obviously at a price. I'd like to talk about Machiavelli. How influential was, was his work in the research and the writing of your book as a sort of an inside, inside knowledge? Yeah, I mean, Machiavelli is really interesting because he, in his own time, I think he is in some ways quite an outlier. And that's possibly why he is, you know, so appealing and has had such a kind of fascinating long-term reputation because he sort of says things that are quite untypical of what was the kind of prevailing thought in Florence at the time. But I think that he he's obviously a kind of presence and he's somebody who a lot of people reading about the Renaissance will, will kind of recognise the name of. So um, I think it was important for me to kind of try and work out how Machiavelli fits into this whole story, but also at the same time to recognise that there's a little bit of a tradition of, I think, trying to paint everybody in the Renaissance as, quote, Machiavellian. Like, you know, to say, oh, well, you know, you've got the Borgia bad guys and they were very Machiavellian about the way you do things, and to sum up Machiavelli with the quote that he never said, that the end justifies the means. And so... The real Machiavelli is um, a lot more sort of interesting and subtle than that. And so he's he's kind of there as a presence. And he is an interesting presence in terms of his role, for example, in military innovation. So in Florence, establishing a citizen militia, which was something novel as a way to defend the city. So kind of enrolling you know, the, the locals and requiring them to turn out and drill and practice for warfare. So that was a kind of, that's a kind of interesting novelty from the from the bigger picture of war. But I was sort of anxious to avoid some of the stereotyping of Renaissance history as all, all, all was people, um, you know, scheming in the way that kind of one mm. associates with the popular image of 
what Machiavellian is. So he was he was very much the observer, but he was also part of the of the political and the social landscape of of the time, rather than necessarily commenting on the evils and the and the dangers of of said politics. Yes, I mean he is in government. He is involved in diplomatic discussions with Cesare Borgia. His letters are an important source for what Cesare Borgia does. And so we've got this, this diff- there's a lot of different things that you get from Machiavelli. You get his kind of correspondence at the time when he's working for the Florentine Republic. And he's, he's there in the civil service, really, in the period when the Medici are in exile. You then get later on, after the Medici come back, and Machiavelli is very much not in government anymore, but is trying to somewhat get back and find patronage, some of his later writings, and those are some of the better known things like The Prince, but also the plays, some of his later discourses. So you kind of see Machiavelli as somebody who has come out of a particular social environment and a particular wartime environment that's perhaps informed the way that he later writes. Of course, there's a great debate about The Prince as to whether The Prince is a book about what is or a book about what ought to be in terms of what princes do. And I mean, gosh, there are so many different theories that, you know, within the scope of uh, having, you know, part of a chapter in a book, it's just not feasible to, to do justice to them all. But I think there are some really interesting reflections to be had there on how far some of those texts are informed by a wartime experience and by living through that period of conflict and what that does to you psychologically. I mean, I think it's interesting to reflect like from the present day, I think probably being in the middle of this pandemic that we're all in now is as close as a lot of people of my generation have ever got to sort of living in an emergency situation. And it does make you reflect, I think, on just what that does to you psychologically and what that does in terms of how you think about things and how you think about people and what it does to politics and how you relate to politics and politicians, having lived through something that's a kind of very direct emergency impinging on your own life. Absolutely. Your book is out now, available, I assume, in all good bookshops and online. And can you remind, can you remind listeners of the, of the title? Yes, it's The Beauty and the Terror, An Alternative History of the Italian Renaissance. And Catherine, you on Twitter? Yes, I am. Yes, I am at Kath underscore Fletcher. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much for coming on Hidden Histories. I really enjoyed that. No, thank you for having me. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.